So, Father, we thank you um, for this time that you've given us. Uh, thank you, Lord, that you've, uh, you've, you've blessed us these past few weeks with sunshine, and now we have a little bit of snow, but, uh, Lord, you are still good. Uh, the roads aren't horrible. We were able to come here safely. And, uh, Lord, I would just ask that uh, you would bless this time that as we open up your word, you would uh, help us, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would help us to hear your word, that uh, it wouldn't just be simple facts, Lord, that we would actually put our trust in your word and live it out, and that uh, you would use it to mold us and shape us into your, the, the image of your Son. Um, Lord, again, we thank you uh, for everything that you do. We thank you for uh, your love, Lord, uh, for your patience with us and, and for your care. And Lord, I know that there are individuals who are watching this online who are not able to he be here because of illness and, and other uh, such things, but uh, Lord, you are taking care of them as well. Pray that they feel um, uh, your presence, Lord, that they would recognize that you love them and that you give them that peace that passes all understanding and that uh, this uh, message would uh, be a message of, of encouragement as well. Um, we thank you. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We are going to be looking at uh, verses 1 through 10. So Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. Uh, we're going to do kind of what we've been doing the past couple of weeks. We're going to get into our little imaginary plane. We're going to read through the entire passage, get a bird's eye view of it, and then we're going to land the plane and then uh, take our time going through it. So uh, Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1, Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. We continue our series uh, looking at this amazing letter written by the Apostle Paul around 60, 61 AD to a church located in the city of Ephesus, a city that was declared the mother city of Asia, which is now modern day Turkey. Uh, it was called considered that way because of its uh, significant influence in politics and religion and also uh, commerce. And while um, the city of Ephesus was prosperous, uh, it was a spiritually dark city. Uh, many of the uh, individuals who lived in Ephesus who were followers of Christ uh, came from uh, a life deeply rooted in paganism and magic and sorcery and that, the practice of magic and sorcery. Um, and so a lot of them uh, struggled with their identity. Who am I? Again, we, we talked about identity is important. When you know who you are, you know what to do. And what Paul is uh, focusing in on uh, his letter to uh, 
the Ephesians is the believer's identity in Christ. Again, he refers, he, he mentions that phrase in Christ some 30 times along with its variations in this letter alone. He lists it all over the place in his other epistles. It's all in Christ. And um, in this letter, uh, Paul is not shy of large sentences. We already looked at a couple of weeks ago, uh, chapter one, verses three through 14, one giant sentence in the Greek made up of 202 words. It's just this amazing explosion of praise to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Uh, and last week, we looked at another large uh, uh, passage. It was the, the last half of chapter one. Paul uh, hears of, of uh, the, the faith and, and love of the people, uh, the believers in the city of Ephesus. He rejoices in the fact that their faith is genuine, that it's true, and that, they're, again, they're, they're expressing that faith in love towards one another. And so he prays for them. He prays that their knowledge and understanding of God would grow more and more, that, that they would have a, a, a solid, fall, uh, a, a full, complete knowledge of the hope of their calling. And, and this next section that we're, we're looking at kind of piggybacks off of that prayer where he's kind of just elaborating. This is, this is important stuff I want you to, to know. And he begins with another large uh, uh, sentence. It's verses one through seven. The actual subject of this sentence is found in verse four, and that is God. God is the subject of this sentence. The main verb of this sentence is found in verse five, made us alive together with Christ. In other words, this is the main focus. This is where the, 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 the sentence is pointing towards. This is, but what Paul's gonna be bringing up is good news. The good news for believers who are in Christ, we've been saved, we're saved. So we looked at in chapter one, verses one and two, if you're in Christ, you're a saint. Verses three to 14, if you're in Christ, you are blessed. Today, we find out if you are in Christ, you have been saved. It's good news, it's amazing news. But before Paul gets to that good news, he's gonna start with bad news. Oh bad news. It's the kind of news you found out when you looked up out the window and you saw snow falling. You're like, ah, your heart, part of you just died. You know, it's just, you're sad, but that's, he starts with the bad news. And again, this is something that a lot of Christians don't like to talk about. And the majority of the wor world does not want to hear about the bad news. We already hear the bad news. And then, you know, some Christians look, well, I don't like focusing on the bad news. I want to focus on the good news, you know, because that, that makes people feel comfortable and that is encouraging to people. But again, in order for good news to be good, there has to be bad news. I mean, that's the only logical, it, it only makes sense. If it's good news, it has to trump bad news. And depending on the significance of that bad news determines the significance of that good news. Amen? Yeah. So what Paul's going to do is he's going to give us the bad news, the bad, the ugly, the horrible. It's literally, it's hopeless. This is basically the life of a Christian prior to Christ. This is who we used to be apart from Christ. And what, so how he's going to begin, oh, it's really interesting, just a little side note, as far as observation here. When you look at the Greek, when Paul brings up the, uh, the, the bad news, he uses a number of, of words that have long syllables 
to it. It's almost as if he's trying to show the drudgery, the, the weightiness, the heaviness of this bad news. But then when he switches gears to talk about the good news, he uses words that have shorter syllables. It's almost like this excitement. He wants you to, this is, this is amazing news that you should be rejoicing in. And by extension, we, all the entire church should be rejoicing in. But again, we have to start with the bad news, the bad news. So here we are. Hopefully you don't get a sour stomach, but here we go. Either way, the bad news. He's going to start off first with describing our situation apart from Christ. What is our situation? Starting at verse one, he says, and you were what? Dead, dead. You know what the Greek word for dead is? Dead, dead, lifeless, yes, uh, devoid of life. However you want to describe that, it's, it's, it's dead. Now, obviously, Paul's not talking about physical, like physically dead. Yes, sin does bring death. I mean, we look in Genesis 1 and 2, death was not part of God's original design. As soon as death, uh, sin came into the world, death followed right afterwards. But uh, Paul's not specifically talking about physical death here. He's more focused on the spiritual aspect. So this is spiritual death. He says, we were dead in your trans- tra- um, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In uh, the book of Romans, Paul says that the wages of sin is what? Death. Wages of sin is death. And grammatically, the way Paul puts it here, it's not that apart from Christ, we were occasionally dead, or like Miracle Max and Princess uh, Bride, mostly dead. Yeah, some people got good. You nerds unite. I was wondering if anyone was going to know that, that reference there. Um, it wasn't as you were uh, partially dead, mostly dead. It means you were continually, fully, completely dead. That was your existence, being spiritually dead continually apart from Christ. That was, that's your situation. Yay. Is that happy? No, that's bad news. So the question is, what does it mean to be spiritually dead? If we look at uh, Isaiah 59, the prophet Isaiah is talking to um, Israel and he basically says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. Your sins have hidden his face. In Colossians chapter one, which by the way, Colossians was written around the same time that Ephesians was written. So if you read both of those letters uh, together, you'll notice a a lot of similar language. But uh, Paul says in Colossians chapter one, verse 21, that uh, we were alienated from God. See, God is the the source of life. He's 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 the source of eternal life. Life And what it means to be spiritually dead means to be separated from that source of life, to be cut off from that source of life, to be alienated from that source of life. That's what, that's what it means. That's a bad place to be, right? Now, for some, they, they, they kind of understand spiritual death a little bit differently. Some, some will actually say, well, you know, being what it means to be spiritually dead means you are incapable of doing anything good, which that doesn't make any sense because if I'm pretty sure we all know individuals who do pretty exemplary things, who are not followers of Christ, but man, they they do some pretty incredible things. They're kind, they're generous. You've probably seen some who served in the military, first responders, individuals who put them, their lives on the line to help people, people who, who, 
sacrifice a lot of their own personal time, even with family, so that they can invest it in other families. You know, these are individuals you would say, wow, these are good people. These are people deserving of medals and honors. We should follow in their footsteps. But biblically speaking, if they are not in Christ, it doesn't matter what they do. They are spiritually dead. Now, this is some information that people would go, oh, that's offensive to me. I know I'm not perfect, but at least I try to do good. Again, there's no in between. You're either alive in Christ or you're spiritually dead in your sins and trespasses. There is no middle. Again, it's not mostly dead, kind of dead, question mark. I don't really know. No, either you're in Christ or you're not. Either you're spiritually alive in Christ or spiritually dead. And people go, well, wait, that doesn't make any sense because look at this guy. At least I didn't walk out on my family. At least I didn't cheat on my wife. At least I didn't rob from my, uh, uh, steal from my company, you know, or, or this guy right here. I mean, he spends all of his week just stealing things from people so that he could support his drug a- habit. Surely he's spiritually dead. He's like, well, granted that individual, those individuals might be a little bit more decayed than others, but they're still spiritually dead apart from Christ. You are spiritually dead no matter what you do. And you can't change that. You are cut off. You are separated from God, from having a relationship with God, from being empowered by him. You are spiritually dead, alienated from God. Another uh, uh, belief of what it means to be spiritually dead is incapable of even responding to the gospel message. You are incapable of responding to the gospel. In other words, God has to regenerate your life in order to give you the opportunity or in order to, um, in order for you to actually make that decision to trust in Christ. But again, that's not what Paul's talking about. You look throughout scripture, Paul never brings that up that God has to first make you alive in order for you to respond in faith. And so some people will, when, when Paul says that it is a gift from God, they'll, they'll include, oh, it's, the gift is, is faith, that God has to choose to waken up your spirit so that you can choose uh, to salvation. And that, again, that's not what Paul is saying. Being spiritually dead does not mean incapable of making a decision to follow Christ. What it does make you incapable of is making yourself alive. It, it's, it, you are incapable of doing anything that um, is glorifying to God, that earns your salvation. You're incapable of doing any of those things. You are spiritually dead. And it was interesting, Paul, Paul um, he, he says, and you were, were dead in your trespasses and sin, unless anyone else would say, oh, well, yeah, of course, that person's dead in his trespasses and sin. He, in verse uh, uh, three, uh, says, we too, to kind of show the extent of the situation. It's not just a couple of people who are spiritually dead. It's everybody who's apart from Christ. This is the universal predicament of the entire world. We are all apart from Christ, spiritually dead. And what happens? What does that lead to? Number two, the look at, he, he points to the way we live. The first one is according to the world. Verse two, in which you formerly walked, in which you formerly behaved, conducted yourselves according to the course or the age or the system of this world. 
uh, uh, Paul says in Romans uh, chapter 12, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. This, this world that we live in has a pattern that it, it, it follows, has a mold that it, it goes by. It's almost like a, being in, in a river. Like if you've ever gone into the Deschutes River and just floated around in it, it's basically majority of people are kind of flowing into this, this current called the world. And this world current is complete opposition, complete rebellion against God. Again, majority of the people are floating in this unless you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you're floating in this world, the course of this world. You're following after its principles. What's the focus of this world? The focus is not on God. It's on other things. Majority on self. The focus is not on God. Focus on self. What are my desires? What are my goals? What are my dreams? The world is not, a, is not focused on glorifying God. It's about glorifying self. The, 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 the focus is, is, of this world is, is not following the, the truth of God, but following our own truth. Have you heard that? Oh, you do you. You follow your own truth or follow the, the wisdom of this world. But Paul says the wisdom of this world is foolishness. It's foolishness. You know, you have a lot of individuals who have spent years, decades of their life studying a particular thing, humanitarian cause or something to make life better. In the end, it's foolish. It's almost like it's, it's a waste of time. But again, majority of people are floating in this current. Why? Well, because everyone else is doing it. We're all together. We all, we all have the same values, the same purposes, the same goals. This is great. Kumbaya. We're all, it reminds me of Proverbs. It says, you know, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to destruction. Well, that's what all people are doing and floating in this. Oh, everything's great. This is definitely going to lead to utopia. No, it's not. It's going to lead to destruction. But apart from Christ, this is where we, where we were. This is how we were living our lives according to the pattern of this world. We were floating in this stream. The second one is we, we followed according to the devil. We lived our lives according to the devil. He says, uh, according to the prince. The word prince there means ruler or leader of the power of the air. Power is the, is the Greek word um, ex, exousia, which is authority. So uh, the, the, the ruler of, of this governing influence of the air, the air was a, a term uh, in the first century that just referred to the place where the spirits dwelt, where they, where they, they like the spirit realm. In other words, Satan is not this insignificant spirit being that really doesn't do anything. Paul's really clear that that this, this being, this, thing, this, this being called Satan, the devil, though he has been defeated by Christ, he still has a very a strong, powerful influence in this world. And he also has demons who carry out his little missions and everything. So there's demonic influence going on. Paul says, uh, you know, of the spirit that is now working, that is now continually functioning, operating in the sons of disobedience. Again, this, is where, this was our situation. Following the, the pattern of this world, following after the ways of the devil. 
Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4 that, that Satan is the god of this age. In John chapter 12, uh, it, Satan is, is uh, described as the ruler of this world. In John chapter 14, he's described as the prince of this world. Significant, powerful influence. A spirit that is now working, operating in the sons of disobedience. The sons of disobedience, it's again, it's a, it's a, kind of a horrible description. It's like if trespasses and sins, got married, had a baby... Here's their offspring, sons of disobedience. Guess what? That was us. That was us prior to Christ. And the influence of the world, the influence of Satan and his, and his demons, we were following right along in that. That's bad news, right? It gets even worse. Um, he says here, the next one is according to the flesh. He says, among them, we too, all formally lived in the lusts. We, when he says formally lived, it's literally we busied ourselves in the desires, the longings of the flesh. The word he uses for flesh could literally mean your physical body. The way Paul uh, utilizes is this, this impulse, the, the, this draw to sin, the flesh, indulging, continually indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. This is what theologians would call that sinful nature. This is who we were apart from Christ. Again, apart from Christ. If you are not in Christ, this is who you are. So the situation, really bad. We're dead, spiritually dead. The way we live, we live according to the world, according to this world system, following it, flowing in the stream of this world system. We follow the devil, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And we also live our lives according to the flesh. And what is the result of this situation? He says the end of verse three, and we're by nature. Again, grammatically, it's not that you were occasionally, you were continually this. You were by nature, your very essence qualities about you. You were by nature children of wrath. Children of wrath. I get this is one of those things. Oh, I don't like talking about wrath. I like talking about that God is love. Is that true? God is love? Yes, God is love. That is true. Hallelujah for that. But out of all the descriptions of, of God, the one used more often is God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. And because he's holy and righteous and just, he can't just overlook sin. He can't just brush it under the rug and say, okay, well, I'll pretend I didn't see that. That's not just. I've used this illustration before, but imagine if you were on Highway 97, some guy just hits you. You're on Highway 97, you're driving, you have your friends or family in the car. You get hit really hard by this guy going, you know, bazillion miles an hour. And as a result of that car accident, the people in your car die. You yourself almost die. You wake up in the hospital after being in a coma for however long. Policeman's there and says, oh, good, you're awake. Just want to let you know, uh, the guy was drunk. He was high on something. The car that he was driving was something, a, a car that he actually stole. Um, your family, friends, whoever was in the car, are, they're dead. Uh, you're alive, and we're going to let the guy go. It's like, what? No. Why, why would that be offensive to us? Because that's what? Unjust. 
It's not right. It's like, no, that guy committed a crime. He needs, there needs to be some justice there. Now, some people say, well, that, that, that's, that's an over-exaggeration. My sins are really not that bad. Are you kidding me? Any sin, yeah, whoa. Any sin is evil against God. He is holy. He is righteous. Sin is anything we do or don't do that is in direct opposition to his holy and righteous standards. It is evil. It doesn't matter if it's a little white lie or just a, whatever you call it. Whatever, you can even say, name all the, the, the tiny little sins. One of the things as a leadership we've been looking at is gossip. Because a lot of people consider gossip one of those, oh, it's really not that bad. But it really is. It, it doesn't matter. It's sin. It's bad. It's bad. And as a result, we are not deserving of blessing. We are not deserving of any goodness of eternal life with God forever in his kingdom. We are deserving of wrath. And not just us, Paul says, even as the rest. Again, showing how far universally spread this bad news is. This is really bad news. It's hopeless as well because you can't do anything to change it. There's nothing you could do to change it. You could do all the great, greatest good in this world, be a part of all the different causes in this world, and nothing you do can get you out of the situation. It's bad. It's hopeless. But it's not the end. We get to what? Now the good news. So that was the bad news. Pretty bad, amen? Really, really bad. Here's the good news. The good news of salvation. And first he's going to uh, bring up God's motivation in regards to that salvation. Verse four, he says, but God. And the first thing, his motivation is being what? Rich in mercy. Continually existing with an opulent amount of mercy. The Greek word that he uses for mercy, um, eleos. Uh, if you look in the Old Testament, um, it's like the book of Jonah. We went, we just gone, went through the book of Jonah. Uh, the way God behaves, interacts with the people of Nineveh. The Hebrew word is, is, that is used is chesed. It's this continuous loving kindness, compassion, mercy that God uh, pours forth on the people of Nineveh. Remember, wicked people, evil people, enemies of God, but he had chesed. He showed them chesed. Well, if you look at the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, that word chesed is then replaced with this other, this word eleos, to describe the same kind of mercy, this continuous loving kindness, mercy that God has. And guess what? He is rich with mercy. He is wealthy with mercy. That bank account is never gonna run dry. The next is his love. And it's just not his love, but look what he says, because of his great love with which he loved us. 
So what motivated Christ, what motivated God in, in, in the salvation? His rich mercy, his kindness, his compassion, his pity, and his great love with which he loved us. Bible, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only son that whoever believes in him, what? Should not perish, but have everlasting life. The word love there is agape love. It's the love that Christ displayed when he died for us. It's this sacrificial devotion. It's not love that is simply lip service. It is a love that has action to it. God was motivated by his rich supply of mercy, his kindness, compassion toward us, and his great love towards us. Get this, beginning of verse five, even when we were dead in our transgressions, even when we were dead in our transgressions. In Romans, Paul says that it is very rare for someone to die for another person. Maybe for a good person, someone maybe would consider dying for someone. But Christ demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ came and lived and died for us. That's amazing to me. We don't earn that. We don't deserve that. That's amazing. He is rich mercy, his great love. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, Christ saved us. Then we go to God's actions in regards to our salvation. Verse five. Even when you were dead in your transgressions, number one, made us alive together with Christ made us alive. We who used to be spiritually dead have now been made spiritually alive. He says, um, he adds a parenthetical phrase here that he's going to develop a little bit more later on, but he says, by grace, you have been saved. By great grace is the Greek word charis, which is a a favor, love, kindness that is bestowed on someone. It is something that is not earned, deserved, merited in any way. So mercy is receiving, is not receiving what we do deserve. Grace is receiving something that we don't deserve. It's amazing, amazing. By grace, you have been saved. You didn't do anything to earn, to receive this favor from God. He just gave it. So we've been made alive together with Christ. And two, verse six, beginning of verse six, and raised us up with him. So we were once spiritually dead. Now we're spiritually alive. Galatians 2, 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the son of God who gave himself to die, who, who died, he gave himself to, for us. So just as Christ was crucified, it's because we are in Christ, it's like our old self has died. Our old self, our old nature has died. And just as Christ was risen from the the, the dead, we have now been raised from spiritual death into spiritual life. And we're not just different. The Bible says we are a new creation we are a new creation. Paul says the, the old has died. Your, your old nature, it's gone. It ain't never coming back. You are a new creation because you are now in Christ. 
So he made us spiritually alive. He raised us up with him, get this later on, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Just as Jesus was exalted, we have now been exalted as well. Why? Because we're so great, we're so amazing, we're so magnificent, because God looked in our future and saw some potential in us? No, just for the simple fact that we are now in Christ. Because we are in Christ now, where he's at, we're at. And that's not something, notice, Paul's not talking about like, oh, eventually you're going to be seated with him. No, he's grammatically saying, this is something that's already happened. From the moment you put your trust in Christ, you were seated with him. You were made alive, raised up, seated with him in the heavenly places. That's where you are spiritually speaking. Physically, we're still here. Spiritually, we're with him. And one day we will be with him forever and ever and ever in a new body. That's amazing to me. That is so, so cool. Which is why Paul um, uh, talks about in uh, uh, Colossians uh, 3 that, um, well, Philippians, he says that we are now citizens of heaven. We are now part of God's kingdom. In Colossians 3, he says, stop seeking the things below. Seek the things above because that's where you are, spiritually speaking. You're with Christ. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things below. He says, your life is hidden in Christ. It's amazing truth. That's the reality. And what is God's purpose in all of this? What is God's purpose? Verse seven, so that in the ages to come, he might show, he might publicly display the surpassing riches, the abounding abundance of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, by, by God's grace, I was raised in a household um, that taught the Bible, that talked about Jesus. And so, uh, and as a result of that training at a young age and, and the consistent prayers of my mother towards her children, um, I got saved at a very early age. You know, um, I, I would consider my testimony rather boring. You know, I, I, I didn't go off the deep end. I didn't rebel and steal the parent's car and make a mess of my life. And then finally, after years and years, realize that my state and come back, you know, and, and, and turn my life over to, to Christ. Um, that didn't happen. I was, again, saved at a relatively young age. But here's the thing, even in my so-called boring testimony, the surpassing riches of his grace is publicly displayed. As boring as my te- I think my testimony is, I, I publicly display God's riches, the, the riches of God's grace in my life. Some of you had a pretty interesting <laughs> testimony. You know, it was one of those roller coaster rides and crazy. And your testimony is a public display of the surpassing riches of his grace. That's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. I don't know, if if that doesn't pump you up, if that doesn't just encourage you, I don't know what will. This is the good news. The bad news, again, big stark contrast here. We used to be spiritually dead. 
cut off from the source of life, cut off from eternal life. We're following according to the patterns of this world, according to the devil, according to the flesh, and we're by nature children of wrath, destined for judgment. But God showed up and he was motivated by rich mercy, by his great love for which he loved us. When we place our faith in Christ, we who were spiritually dead, he has made us now spiritually alive. And just like Christ was risen from the dead, we have been raised. And he has, as just as Christ is exalted, we are now seated with Christ in his exalted place. We display his riches of his grace. He continues on that this salvation, number one, is a gift. Beginning at the end of... um, Let me see here. Verse eight. For by grace, you have been saved. Again, it's that unmerited favor and kindness and goodness that God gives us. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. The idea of trusting in Christ, putting your your trust and devotion in Christ. And that not of yourself. This salvation did not originate from yourself. It is the gift of God. It is a present from God. Salvation is a gift. It's a precious gift. And I'm going to be honest, because my testimony was boring and I, became, I, I got saved at an early age, I took for granted this precious gift. Because it almost seemed like it was, just, it was always a part of my life. Until I realized, <laughs> reading this, oh man, I was in bad shape. Hallelujah for God's amazing grace. Some of you, again, who came from a really interesting testimony, you, my prayer is that you would recognize the significance of this amazing gift. It's like, oh, there's just no way. I was horrible. I was as bad as they come. And yet this, this, this gift was offered to me, this salvation. Salvation is a gift Number two, it's not by works. He says it's, it's not as a result of works. It's not the results of what we do, our actions, our deeds, so that no one may boast. We don't bring anything to the table when it comes to our salvation. We bring nothing. Christ brings it all. Man, again, Jesus lived the life you and I can never live. He lived a perfect, sinless life. Good luck trying to do that. He died and he took on himself the punishment that our sin rightfully deserves to offer us a salvation that we can never earn on our own. We don't bring anything into this relationship. In fact, prior to Christ, we're really not pursuing that relationship with Christ. God pursues us. And he says he sends the Holy Spirit to convict us, to shake us up and say, hey, listen, you're a sinner. You need a savior. Here's the the savior. His name is Jesus. He's great. He's awesome. Trust in him. I'll give you the Holy Spirit. You'll be exalted where Christ is exalted. And one day you'll be with him forever and ever and ever in a place where there's no weeping, no crying, no, no death. We don't bring anything into our salvation. He brings it all so that no one can boast. 
And finally, he, bring, he closes the evidence so that even though our salvation is not earned by our works, it is the evidence of our salvation. Verse 3, he says, uh, uh, verse 10, for we are, again, this, the verb there is we continually exist as followers of Christ. We are his workmanship. This is the Greek word poema. Some scholars would say this is where we get the word poem. Uh, I don't really know if that's, you know, there's some, still some debate about that, but it literally means a handiwork. It, it's the idea we are a creation that has been made with skill. It's the idea of, of, of you know, someone, uh, an artist kind of putting together, sculpting something. He's taking his time. It's a valuable piece of work. We are God's handiwork, created, manufactured in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Before the foundation of the world, God said, you know, he, he, he envisioned this thing called the church, his bride. He says, and, this, and these people are going to be united in Christ they're going to have the Holy Spirit in them. And they're going to do good works in this world. What are these good works? Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink or whether you sleep, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. We, I, I grew up with this idea that there's a, this thing as a secular, secular work or secular things and sacred things. You know, it was ideal. Oh, you're a pastor. You have a sacred job. You know, my dad, he's an electrician. He has a secular job. But according to the Bible, if you are in Christ, there's no, no, there's no such thing as sacred and secular. It's all sacred. It's everything you do is an opportunity to glorify God. Why? Because you have the Holy Spirit in you. Everything you do is an opportunity to glorify God. And so we're supposed to live that way. Glorify God and do good works. The word here for good is, is works that are beneficial for others. This is amazing truth right here. This, you know, again, the way Paul brings this up, sets this up, is just, it's just perfect. Look, it, it sounds like he, he had some help. <laughs> because he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Obviously, he had help. But to start with the bad news, this is really bad. It's, it's so bad, it's hopeless. But now here's the good news, and it's really good news. It's awesome news, amen? It's incredible news. If you are in Christ, you are a saint, you are blessed with every uh, spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and you are saved. You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now you have a purpose. You have a mission. Go do it. One of the aspects of that mission is to proclaim this good news to people. People need it. Desperately need it. There was a guy who was born in uh, 1748. His name was uh, Jeremy Bentham. He was a philosopher, a legal writer, and a political reformer who lived in London. And he was considered by many to be the uh, founder of utilitarianism, which uh, for some they'll call it the greatest happiness principle, which to really oversimplify it, it's an action is considered good if it's 
if it makes you happy and others happy. That was kind of his uh, philosophical point of view. Known for his unique sense of humor, uh, Bentham uh, stipulated in his will that at the time of his death, his body was to be given to his good friend who was a surgeon. His bones were to be extracted from his body. Okay, I'm not making this up. This is all true, okay? And his skeleton was to be reassembled, dressed in his favorite clothing, stuffed and seated on one of his favorite chairs in a relaxed position with his cane in his hand and publicly displayed on the grounds of the University College of London, a college, uh, that, a school that he helped, helped found. Yeah. His head, he wanted his head to be mummified a particular way and placed on this reconstruction of himself, which he labeled his auto-icon, okay? Um, The idea was that his friends and colleagues would not have to mourn him because he was still with them. Okay, well, the mummification of his head did not go well. It... uh, It actually looks absolutely horrifying. And so what they ended up doing is uh, creating this waxed version of his head and placing that on his auto icon. And uh, in fact, go to that, that picture. There he is. This is Jeremy Bentham right there. Now, even though this uh, reconstruction of Bentham's remains are pretty, pretty impressive, I would have to say, you know, uh, the, the waxed face does resemble him quite, quite nicely. And uh, you know, it, it, the, the, the reconstruction was very interesting. Um, the way they tied the bones together, they used this really thick metal so that they could pose him in different ways. <laughs> so I don't make this up. This is just crazy, creepy stuff. Um, but even though the reconstruction is, is pretty, pretty, pretty good, He's got a nice little jolly grin on himself. Um, It's still a dead man. It's still bones. No matter what clothes you put on it or position you configure it in, it's still a dead person. Jeremy Bentham thought that he could give the impression he was still around by simply uh, reassembling his skeleton, dressing it, stuffing it, and positioning it on a chair. It didn't work. When his close friends walked past his custom-made viewing box, which now this is the newest viewing box. The other one was, had a glass and it was made out of wood. When his friends passed him, they wouldn't see their beloved colleague. They would see a dead body, a dead person. Similarly, many people think that if we just put on the right religion, stuff ourselves with pithy sayings and churchy truisms, they can get God to, um, they can give God the impression that they're in good standing with him, that they're spiritually alive, but that doesn't work. They are still spiritually dead. No matter how loving they are or how many people they may help, or how many times they pray or go to church, they are still spiritually dead. Without Jesus, it's a hopeless situation. That's the bad news. That's the bad news that Paul really wants to emphasize. But the good news 
is because of the immeasurable riches of God's grace and our faith in Jesus, we who were once spiritually dead are now alive with Christ. The powers that once enslaved us, the world, the devil, and the flesh no longer control our lives. This is good news. This is the good news that the world needs to hear. We need to rejoice in it. Don't take that gift lightly, but we need to proclaim it. As we go out these doors, as you walk around the the city of Lapine, you see a lot of Jeremy Bentham's walking around. Individuals who look like they're alive, but they're dead. They're lost. They're separated from the source of life. And if they continue living in that position, wrath, judgment. I mean, that's, that's something. And God, God does not desire that none should perish. He doesn't want people to perish. He doesn't want that to happen. He's patient. He's trying to get their attention using the Holy Spirit and also using us to proclaim the message. How are we doing with that? See, the, the, the problem is with, with a lot of us Christians, we get comfortable in the fact that we're, oh, I'm blessed, I'm a saint, I'm saved, hallelujah, praise God. When's lunch? When's the next pot blessing? When's the next movie night? This is great. When's the next Bible study? And there's nothing wrong with rejoicing in our salvation. Hallelujah, praise God. But where is that urgency to proclaim this good news to the world? Where is that urgency? Oh, I just don't want to offend anybody. It's like if, if someone was inside of a building, you know, with, and there was a massive earthquake and that building was about to tumble and you see someone in the window and they're just listening to their iPod singing, whatever. And what do you do? Get out of that building. It's going to fall on you, collapse. And oh, no, but someone, a rare religious person says, you know, that's not the way to do it. You, you don't shout at them. That's going to ruffle their feathers. Uh, you just need to, tell them that there's a door that they can go through and it would be really good for them if they did that. But no, the building's falling. No, 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 no. You don't want to offend them. That's silly. Again, we're laughing because that's silly. But yet, that's what happens. Oh, I don't want to offend them. I don't want to ruffle their feathers. People are walking around. They're the walking dead. They're children of wrath. They're individuals that God loves. Where he, these are individuals that he sent his son to die for. Where's our urgency to go tell them this good news? We need to proclaim it. We need to proclaim it. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Um, Lord, this was a, a rather difficult passage to go through because it's so familiar it is so familiar, especially for those uh, for, for us uh, who, who've grown up in the church. We've heard, I've heard this passage over and over. I even memorized most of it. But Lord, it is so significant. There is bad news. It is horrible. It is hopeless, bad news. But hallelujah, there is good news. 
there's good news that trumps that bad news. Thank you, Lord, that um, you saved us. Even when we were still dead in our trespasses and sins, you saved us. Thank you for this free gift that you offer to everyone. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to bring anything to the table because we can't. We can't impress you. There's nothing we can do to to earn your favor. Thank you for sending Jesus to, to live and die for us. Thank you, Lord, that the, the way to, to have a relationship with you is not through a bunch of rites and rituals. We don't have to climb a mountain. We don't have to recite a mantra. We don't have to do anything. We just simply put our trust in Jesus. Trust him that he is the solution to our problem. He is our savior. He is our Lord. He is our master. Thank you again for this amazing truth, Lord. May this truth spur us on to proclaim the good news to the world. There are many Jeremy Bentham's walking around some of them are our neighbors, co-workers, friends, family members. May we love them enough not to let them go one more second without hearing the good news. Lord, there may be some listening online, some here in this room who have never placed their faith in Christ. I pray, Lord, that um, they would recognize right now that they are spiritually dead that they are children of wrath, that they're following the course of this world. They're enslaved to the passions, the lusts of the flesh, following after Satan and his demons. Satan's and demons are your enemy, Lord, and apart from Christ, we're your enemies. May they recognize the, the bad news of their situation. But Lord, may they also recognize the good news, the solution salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. May they make that decision today. May they not wait because Lord, this life is so fleeting. Life is so quick. This may be the only opportunity they have. May they not waste it. May they make the decision today. May they have the courage, Lord, if they have any questions to come up uh, to one of us, Lord, the leadership, myself, or anyone, Lord, to, to, to ask about this salvation. We thank you again that you are a good God. Pray that you bless everyone here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and